Okay, good evening. Um, as you can see, tonight we're going to be doing a question and answer. Uh, I do have about 29 slides, so prepare for about 45 minutes of information. No, I'm just kidding. But we do have 29 slides, but they're going to go pretty quick. Um, what I hope to do is to explain to you uh, why some religious uh, groups believe that there may be extra books in the Bible. Um, and we'll talk about that as we get into this. Uh, but before we begin, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a Q&A with you guys, uh, just to make sure uh, no teenagers are allowed to answer because they should know all these answers. Um, so how many books of the Bible are there? Very good. All right. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. All right. And how many books in the New Testament? 27. Now, why is that important for us to know is the real question. It's good to know those facts, but why should we want to know those facts? Uh, and why should we want to have those things ingrained into our heads? Because there are some religious groups that will add books to the Bible. Well, are they right or are they wrong, right? Should we have more books? Because uh, if you look out there, there are more books that uh, some people will claim to say this is scripture, this is inspired, and this should be something that is uh, from God. And so uh, that's why it's so important. Always remember to know those facts, but remember more importantly why we should know those facts. And so tonight, we're going to be talking about those extra books. What do I mean by those extra books? Um, when we look at this, and I was having to kind of uh, make up the context, I guess, to this question, but this most re likely refers to the books commonly known as the Apocrypha. You may have heard that before. Um, you can get the Apocrypha in a King James Version Bible. Um, and they'll have that set of books as well. Uh, notice what the books of the Apocrypha are in the uh, diagram on the left-hand side of the screen. Uh, you have all of these different, uh, sometimes there will be 14. Uh, if you look at the NAB, don't confuse that with the NASB. The NAB is the most commonly used translation for the Roman Catholic Church, right? Very prominent uh, uh, translation for them. They have these. Now, these are not sectioned off by themselves. They are intertwined throughout uh, their translation. They have Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom, or sometimes seen as Wisdom of Solomon, um, Sirach, or the Wisdom of Jesus, and you also see Baruch. All right. Now, should we have these books in Scripture? All right, should we have these in the canon of the 66 books we have? If we should, then we should really have uh, about 73 books of the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at that answer tonight. Now notice the KJV with the Apocrypha. Um, and they will also use these books, and they'll use the KJV with the Apocrypha in the Catholic Church as well. Uh, now, look at how many there are there. If you read through some of these, are pretty uh, cool, like Bell and the Dragon. It's just one chapter. That's all it is. Um, and so it's just funny when you start actually going through all of these and reading through all these. Um, so now, these books are, are not contained in the canon of Scripture. There's your answer, but why? Why are they not contained in those 
uh, in the canon of Scripture. Three reasons and three different uh, arguments that we're going to go through. Number one, uh, the people of God did not see them as Scripture. Not of the God, but he is the God. Um, the writers of these books even claim that this is not from God. Historians claim that these are not in the original canon of Scripture. So, number one, the people of God did not see them as Scripture. The Old Testament consisted of 22 books made up of three different categories. Now I'm throwing you off big time because you're thinking, wait, 39 books. You got that wrong. Well, us English translation books... Uh, we see 39. In the original Hebrew, it would have been 22 books contained in three different categories, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Notice here in the law, you have those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, the prophets, that's where it gets kind of interesting. This is Josephus and his uh, outlining of the, the 22 different books, 22 letters sometimes they will be called. You have Joshua, you have Judges and Ruth together, you have Samuel, you have Kings, you have Chronicles. See, in our English translations, we separate those out um, because of the information provided. You have Ezra and Nehemiah contained in one volume, not separated like in ours. Uh, you have Esther, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations are put together. And then Ezekiel, the minor prophets, they just lump all those guys into one, and Daniel. Then you have the writings, which is those wisdom literature books that you see contained there. So we see 22 uh, original writings in the Hebrew Bible that they would have uh, seen as the canon of Scripture. Now, notice how God people even didn't claim, his writers didn't even see these books later on as a part of Scripture. Now notice what Joel says in Joel 2, 28-32, very famous prophecy that we'll see later on in Acts. And actually, Luke and his other volume, Acts, he uses this prophecy quite a bit. Uh, some theologians will also claim that all of Luke and Acts is really pertained to this prophecy. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward, or after those days, or after uh, these last days, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh... Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, okay? Uh, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, all right? So he's prophesying about in these, after this and in these last days, right, uh, which we find out later on would be in Acts chapter 2 when this comes about. And so uh, you'll also find in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and also at the end of Malachi, and we all uh, hope know, is Malachi was one of those last prophets to prophesy, right? And he says this in his uh, prophecy, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, and if you were to jump to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord uh, comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Um, so what you notice through these two prophecies, uh, what seems to be implied is that there was not going to be a prophet of God before this next prophet, like Elijah, was to come. 
If you were to go through the New Testament accounts, uh, specifically the gospel accounts, that prophet like Elijah, the one who was going to be crying out in the wilderness, is John the Baptist. And so we see implied throughout that there wasn't going to be a prophet of God until John the Baptist came, right? Now Malachi prophesied around 400, you know, 500 to 400 B.C. John the Baptist came around uh, a little bit before Jesus, right? So there was about 400 years there where we do not see a prophet of God. Now, when I talked about that Apocrypha beforehand, guess when all of those books were written? In the time between Malachi and our New Testament gospel accounts, right? Or the timeline of the New Testament gospel accounts before Jesus came. And so uh, even the people of God were claiming that there wasn't going to be, or at least implying that there wasn't going to be a prophet until this guy came around, this one like Elijah. Now notice how this second argument the writers of these books even claim that this is not from God. Look at 1 Maccabees, right? Now, what Maccabees is, is a, an account, a historical account about a revolt, the Maccabean revolt, uh, rebellion that was going on. And this was right after, it was with the Persian Empire and all of those different things. And so we have this written in 1 Maccabees. And laid up the stones in the mountain of the temple in a convenient place until there should come a prophet to show what should be done with him. What is implied there? There's no prophet at this time. Okay, again, this is uh, post-Malachi. This is after him. This is uh, in rebellion to the Persian Empire. Okay, First uh, Maccabees 9.27, also in this account. So there was a great affliction in Israel. The like whereof was not since the time that a prophet was not seen among them. Uh, so we still have no prophet among the people of Israel. And then also at the, towards the end of his first account of First Maccabees, also that the Jews and priests were well pleased that Simon should be their governor and high priest forever until there should arise a faithful prophet. All right, so in this historical account, we see there is no prophet among the people of Israel at this time, right? Now, let's talk about the, what the historians uh, make argument about there not being uh, books, extra books contained in the canon of Scripture. So notice what Josephus says in his um, account against Appion. It's, it's a... In, almost an apologetic account, uh, talking to this person. It is true, our history hath been written since Artaxerxes, very particularly, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there hath not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. What in the world did he just say? Well, we have to know our timeline, right? When did Artaxerxes come about? He was the last Persian emperor that we were um, that we know about contained in Scripture, and what Josephus is saying here is that there has not been a succession of prophets since the time of Artaxerxes. What's cool about that? When did Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah and all them come about? During the time of Artaxerxes, right? And those would have been our last inspired writers, prophets of God. And so now Josephus is claiming that look. Uh, we don't have a succession of prophets since then, 
All right? Uh, he'll also go on to say, uh, this is actually going to be a different writer, that the Hebrews have 22 letters. What did we talk about earlier? How many letters did they have contained in their original canon of Scripture? 22 letters, right? That the Hebrews have 22 letters is testified by the Syrian and Chaldean languages, which are nearly related to the Hebrew, for they have 22 elementary sounds which are pronounced the same way, but are differently written. The Samaritans right, also employ just the same number of letters. So now you have the Hebrew people and the Samaritan people, right? They both, in their canon of Scripture, contain how many books in the original Hebrew Bible? 22, right? And um, the Samaritans also employ just the same number of letters in their copies of the Pentateuch of Moses and differ only in the shape and outline of the letters. And it is certain that Esdras the scribe and teacher of the law, after the capture of Jerusalem and the restoration of the temple by Zerubbabel, invented other letters, which we now use, although up to that time the Samaritan and Hebrew characters were the same. Look at what's happening here. Some other letters are being invented. So we reckon 22 books, by which, as by the alphabet of the doctrine of God, a righteous man is instructed to tender infancy and, as it were, while still at the breast. What is not found in our list must be placed amongst the apocryphal writings, right? And what uh, Jerome, St. Jerome, he was a uh, theologian. Some would call him a, a uh, church father, right? From A.D. 347 to 420, he was letting us know in his words, and he would have been probably among uh, the Catholic Church at this time, that these extra writings that came about during Zerubbabel's time, after Zerubbabel, right, with Esdras, was extra writings, and we should throw them into the apocryphal writing. But the original 22 books is what uh, we find helps a man uh, be righteous and things along those lines. One last theologian for us, all right, uh, this is Eusebius in his account of church history. He's got a lot of those. And what he's actually doing here is he's quoting Origen, who is a, a theologian, right? Uh, Pre-Nicene Creed time, so way back 185 to 253 AD. He said, it should be stated that the canonical books, as the Hebrews have handed them down, are 22, corresponding with the number of their letters or the number of their alphabet, right? So they did not, the Hebrew people, the people of God, did not contain these extra books because you see those three arguments, right? Uh, the people of God did not see them as books written by uh, inspired men. You also have those own people who are writing those books saying, we don't have a prophet of God with us. And now you're also seeing historians later on looking back at the fact saying, these aren't books of the Bible. Um, so what should we do, right? The extra books are simply that, extra, not to be considered in the canon of inspired writings of God. There's your answer, all right? So what? Should we just throw these books out with the bathwater, right? Should we just get rid of them, right? Don't ever open the Apocrypha. If you do, you're sinning. No, no. What are they good for? I love this quote by uh, Dr. Dan Owen in his book, How We Got the Bible. While it is clear that the books of the Apocrypha are not part of, 
part of God's divine revelation to man, they are of considerable historical value. From these books, we can learn much about history and the thinking of the Jews in the intertestamental period. That's that time from Malachi to Jesus, all right? The study of these books is of great value for our understanding of the world into which Jesus came. And what does that help us understand? Context, right? And that way we can see what kind of culture did Jesus come into? What kind of world was Jesus living in when he's teaching certain things? Why is he teaching those? Read through these books, right? Now, we're not going to hold fast to maybe if a commandment is said or anything like that in there, but we can surely read the historical culture of everything going on in these books. Um, And I would encourage you to do that. And that way you can uh, understand the life uh, that Jesus or the world that Jesus came into. I hope that answers that question um, pertaining to these extra books. Uh, There's also a set of books called the Pseudepigrapha. Again, use this same argumentation for that. Uh, Those are actually even further away from what would be considered scripture. There's some wild stuff talked about in those. Uh, But I hope that's been informative for you and helpful for your understanding of why we don't have the Apocrypha in our canon of Scripture today. Uh, If you're here this evening and you are in need uh, of responding to the invitation, maybe you would like prayers from us uh, this evening. You would like to come uh, forward and ask for those prayers, or maybe you are ready to take that next step in your faith and uh, have your sins washed away in baptism We would encourage that as well. If you have a need, please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation.